0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O God, for your blessing in everything. Grant us your peace, and be with us, O Lord, during this time. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not the temptation, but deliver us from the evil one in Christ Jesus, our Lord for thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, I hope all of you guys are uh, safe and well after the storm. Um, God willing, uh, the city can recover quickly. Uh, today, we're going to have another Q&A session. Uh, the, uh, the submission form link is on your screen. If you would like to submit any questions for any future Sessions, please uh, uh, submit the form uh, anonymous questions there. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Uh, First question. Uh, In Ecclesiastes 3.1, Solomon says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. I have a hard time internalizing this verse. I believe it is right, but it is hard for me to not do the things that I want to do instantly and I end up overwhelming myself and not finishing some of the things that I start. Do you have any advice for me? I wanted to go um, over uh, this uh, passage in Ecclesiastes chapter three, uh, because it's a very, it's a very nice uh, passage and it kind of reminds us of the bigger picture in life uh, and the idea that there are seasons to life, You know, where it says to everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. It reminds us that there are seasons that not whatever specific point in time that I'm at is not going to always be this way. Um, Whether I'm in a high point and everything is going really well, it doesn't mean that things are always going to stay this way. And if I'm at a low point and nothing around me seems to be going well, also, it doesn't mean that everything is going to be this way. And also, it reminds us that um, there is purpose in the seasons, right? When King Solomon says a time for every purpose, that God uses these different seasons of time in our life to accomplish different things, okay? Um, so we can go through some of them. I didn't, not all of them, but I, I picked some of them that we can kind of discuss a little bit and talk about how these, you know, are manifested in our life. And, and and you know, the more that we are thinking about this, the more we are aware of this, the more we are paying attention to these seasons It can help us to deal with different situations in our life. Okay, so in verse two, it says uh, a time to be born and a time to die. Okay, which is uh, something obvious. Right. We all we all know that. Um, But it also means that to everything, there is a beginning and an end. Right. Actually, everything in life has a beginning and an end. Nothing exists that didn't have a beginning and nothing exists that will not eventually end. You know, apart from God himself. Right. Everything else, all of creation has a beginning and has an end. And often we become very excited and joyful and happy at the beginning of something. Right. And, and we tend to be, well, depending on, you know, if if it's something good at the time of its end, we might feel sad. Okay. For everything that has, has a beginning, it also has an end. Whenever we are rejoicing in the beginning, we should always be thinking of, you know, it's good and thankful. We're thankful to God for the good thing that God has given me that the new thing, the new job, the new family member, the, you know, the, 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 the new degree, the, the whatever the new thing is, right, but that doesn't mean that that new thing is going to stay with me forever, right, there, there's going to always be, um, you know, a time where something starts and a time where something stops, okay, so that's, that's an important principle for us to, um, to, 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 to remember, okay. Um, Another verse, uh, it says what a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, meaning that there's a time for investment and there's a time for reaping the rewards of the investment. Um, There's a time for uh, storing and there's uh, there's a time for using up what is stored. And this very much, uh, you know, describes the idea of planning ahead. Right. Like there's a time like there's a time for education, for instance, we spend. Um. so many years of learning in school and college, getting, you know, educated, and then there's a time to use what it is that we have learned, right? Um, there's a time to save money, right, for retirement, and then there's a time to use the money for retirement. So um, there are some seasons where we have to think ahead and be storing up, and this is true also in the spiritual life, like we say in the, for instance, the great fast, which is coming, we say that the great fast is like a way for us to store up spiritually what we need for the rest of the year in the sense that it's the most ascetic time of the year. It's the time of the greatest focus on our spiritual life. It's the time of greatest, um, you know, spiritual struggle, the time where we should be reading more or we should be like focusing on self-control more and that the spiritual benefits that we have will last for the rest of the year until the following year, right? So there's a time for us to to you know fast and there's a time for us to um you know reap the benefits of that fast okay verse three says a time to kill and a time to heal right so there's a there's a time where there is some kind of a war or a battle or a fight right it doesn't necessarily have to be a physical fight it doesn't have to be a physical killing right there's a time of antagonism um and there's a time for recovery right um there's, there's a time for that, where things might break, right? In our life, things that we care about might break. And there's a time for repair and mending, right? So, so again, there's seasons. There's maybe seasons of time where I'm having to deal with certain enemies who are fighting me. There's a certain time where I might be having to deal with, like, some situations that are difficult for me to manage, but then there's a time for recovery from that. There's a time of healing from that. There's a time where I put those things behind me. Again, different seasons. A time to break down and a time to build up, okay? There's, there's, a, there's a time where I tear down something that's old and I build up something that's new. There's a time where something that maybe existed in my life um, that's no longer uh, useful or no longer beneficial to me, uh, relationships that are no longer beneficial to me Uh, you know, uh, different things that might not be helpful to me, where those things, I remove them from my life, I break them down, right? And then there's time for building up new things, new relationships, new habits, right? Something new. Verse four says, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, right? So clearly, we know this, that there are periods of time in our life, where we are sad, um, where there are things to mourn about, where there's things to cry about, When something has has really disappointed us or hurt us in some way and we are feeling very sad and actually this is normal it is normal to have seasons of sadness right it's not something that um, is strange uh, for us as human beings right or to say that something is strange is happening actually this is a very normal part of life that there are things that we mourn over Um, but that mourning should not lead us to to the sorrow leading to death in the sense shouldn't lead us to despair it should make us to feel that we are um, hopeful of a better time in the future, that God is preparing this time to laugh, right? There is seasons of of, of levity. There's a seasons of joy, seasons where um, maybe a, a lot of the things that have happened to us in the past, right? That we've healed from them or that we are now enjoying good fortune, you know, and good things happening to us. Verse six says a time to gain and a time to lose, right? There are times where we are victorious and there's time where we are winning. There's times where we feel like, like we are accomplishing and we are successful. And there's other times where we feel like we have failed, you know, and things didn't work out the way we want. There's a time where we get a really good job offer. And this is the job that we want. There's a time where, you know, we get married and, and we feel like everything is, is kind of lining up in our lives. And um, we, we move to a certain place and we feel like this is God's will and everything is working well in our lives. And we can kind of feel like God's working. But there's other times where we lose. There's times where we fail. There's times where we don't get what we want or that we lose something that we do have, right? All of these are seasons. And, you know, it's important when we, when we read this is to realize that all these things are normal and and should be expected in life. So when they happen, we don't feel like something strange is happening, or something out of control is happening, or that somehow God is not in control. Even though God is control, all these things will happen, there will be seasons, right? A time to keep silence and a time to speak, right? There'll be a time where um, the, the wise thing to do is just to stay quiet, maybe to avoid an argument, maybe um, to, 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 you know, just to, to, to save up what I have to say to a later time and to say it at a, at a better opportunity, rather than in the current moment. You know, sometimes we, we say things that maybe need to be said, but we say them at the wrong time, right? And it would be better for me to keep silent at this time. And other times, there's a time where we must speak. There's a time where we must defend the faith. There's a time where we must defend ourselves. There's a time where we must defend another person. There's a time where we have to stop someone from making uh, a very bad decision um, that might hurt them, right? So there's a time for me to kind of uh, lay low and accept what's happening around me when silence, and there's a time where I have to be bold and I have to speak out against it. And then finally, in verse eight, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace, right? And here, when he says a time to hate, he's, he doesn't mean the kind of hate where the, the hate of the world, right? It means again, yeah, like there's a time of antagonism, there's a time of war, there's a time where we acknowledge that we have enemies and that we have to fight against those enemies, and and there's also a time of love, a time where we are our lives are categorized more by peace and good relationships and friends and and family and we feel like we have good connections with others, whereas in, in, in other cases, there's times where we feel like we don't have that. We feel like like our, our lives are not so much filled with people that are around us that really care about us so much and we're having difficulties with people, right? So there's a time for us to show mercy and kindness and there's a time for us to fight for what is right. So the seasons are very important for us to keep in mind. Um, You know, every time some of these seasons are imposed on us, you know, like they're just the circumstances that we live in. Um, It's something imposed on me. Right. And other times it's a decision that I make, like a time to keep silence and a time to speak. What is it that I should be doing? Right. It's a decision. It's a decision that I make um, based on the situation, which requires wisdom and discernment. Like when is the right time to do this and that? And it really depends so much on the situation. Okay, number two, why was it written that seeds and linens should not be mixed in Leviticus 19, 19? So in this verse, this chapter in Leviticus 19 is filled with a lot of different commandments and rules uh, for the Israelites to follow in the Old Testament. Okay, so I'm going to read this verse 19. It says, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. Okay? So the three points mentioned here are related to the livestock, are related to the sowing of seed, and related to the, to the making of garments and the type of garments, okay, and how the garments are made. And the, the, the common theme in these three points is related to the mixing of dissimilar things, right? So for the livestock, for instance, it says... Do not let your livestock breed with another kind, meaning each species of its, you know, of of livestock should only breed with its own kind, right? Um, There is, of course, you know, benefits, like from a physical perspective, there's benefits to to that, obviously, because um, very often you cannot crossbreed animals. And if you're successfully able to crossbreed an animal, then the resulting animal might be sterile um you know and 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 so from from agriculture standpoint from a farming standpoint doesn't make sense if livestock is your you know is is what you are breeding doesn't make sense to breed dissimilar kinds okay um and any attempt to do so would you know uh would not result in something good okay the second point is the sowing this the the field right it says each field should be dedicated to one type of plant you shall not sow your feed uh, your field with mixed seed meaning don't just put a bunch of different seeds in the same field right of course we know that today as well for the most part when they when seeds are planted you have one kind of crop right you're going to you're going to plant corn you're going to plant wheat and it's one type of crop and if you try to put them together they might damage each other or the harvest might be more difficult to do doesn't make sense in many situations to do that okay the third one is the garment of mixed linen and wool meaning you have two different types uh, or more than one type of uh, cloth and that you weave them together to make a garment, okay? So again, it's the mixing of dissimilar things. So what is the point of this? Like, why is God telling the people? Is it be- is he's- because he's just giving them farming advice and textile advice? No, what he is saying here is, it has a deeper spiritual meaning, okay? So one of the, the, the problems in the Old Testament was that the people of God, the the children of Israel, the Israelites, they were called to be uh, sacred people consecrated to God, consecrated. They were called to live a certain way. They were called to um, obey God and to obey his commandments uh, and not to follow the practices and the belief systems of all of the surrounding nations, Right all the surrounding nations, they had their own belief systems, they had their own religions, they had their own gods, they had their own practices, right? The pagan practices. And so they were, the Israelites were always at risk from being influenced by them. And and in fact, that was their downfall because they were influenced by them. They began to worship idols and eventually their civilization was destroyed, right? Um, And they were taken to exile and some of them were allowed to return again afterward. But this was like the biggest problem Uh, for the Israelites is that they uh, were always being negatively influenced by the nations around them. So God always told them to avoid interacting with the Gentiles, avoid interacting, do not visit them, do not eat with them, do not intermarry with them, avoid them altogether, right? And this wasn't because somehow the Gentiles were bad in the sense that God didn't love those people or that God did not want the salvation of those people. Um, because ultimately, that was in God's plan, is the salvation of the whole world. But at that point in time, any interaction between the Israelites and the Gentiles would have only resulted in the Israelites falling into sin and not fulfilling the, the commandment of God. Okay. So, just as God was telling the people, do not mix with these other nations, so he was giving them other commands which were like to remind them of this idea of do not mix, right? And this was very common in the Old Testament. A lot of the things that God commanded the people to do in the Old Testament was not because of <clears throat> like the thing itself was wrong. Like for instance, here where it says, do not wear a garment of mixed linen and wool. That's like polyester. Like essentially don't don't, don't, don't wear a garment made of two different fabrics. And so when we actually do that all the time, Right? What's what's wrong with wearing something of different fabrics? There isn't anything wrong, right? This was a command not to declare that that this practice was evil. This was a command to remind the the Israelites that they are called to be like a pure, separate, not intermingling with the nations around them, right? And we can apply this today as well. Like these principles, we can apply them today. So we can say don't try to live for god and the world at the same time this is a kind of mixing like where we as christians are trying to mix we're trying to say that i want to please god and i want to live for god and i want to obey the commands of god but at the same time i want to enjoy everything that's in the world and i want to please myself with everything that's in the world and i want to live completely in the world in the sense of the in the culture of the world just like anybody else right and this is when christ came and he says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot live for God and live for the world at the same time. It's not possible, right? And this is one of the lessons that the Israelites, you know, needed to learn, is that they could not be consecrated to God while at the same time living like the rest of the nations. You know, the rest of the nations, for instance, when they would go to war, they would take with them like the idols of their gods as like their God of war to fight with them. The Israelites didn't have... You know, they didn't have an idol to take with them to war, right? God is spirit. So they would take the Ark of the Covenant, which was not what God intended the Ark of the Covenant to be. The Ark of the Covenant was supposed to remain in the tabernacle, right? But they took the Ark of the Covenant with them to kind of be uh, the equivalent of bringing an idol with them into the war so they can kind of remember the presence of God with them. This wasn't what they were supposed to do. They were trying to live like the pagan nations, while at the same time obeying God. This is also what God told the people uh, when they asked for God to make them a king, right? To choose for them a king. They kept saying to God that they want a king, just like the other nations. And God warned them about what would happen if they were given a king, but they didn't care. All they wanted is to be like the other nations. We also, as Christians, sometimes we, we, we want to be like the world. We want to live like them. We want to do the things that they do. We want to partake of those things, because when we don't, we feel like we are left out, we feel like we are rejected, we feel like, you know, that, that it's difficult, we, it is a temptation to live in this world, and to have control over what we are allowing ourselves to do, right? But this is exactly what God called the Israelites to do in this idea of do not mix together, okay? Another thing that we should not mix is the truth, right? God gives us the truth, God tells us the truth, The world does not believe the truth of God. The world has its own version of truth and many, many versions of truth for each person has their own version of truth. The versions of truth that are in the world and the truth that comes from God are not compatible with one another, right? I cannot live my life again based on the truth of God while at the same time accepting these false truths or these false lies in the world, right? Our decisions have to be based on one or the other. Either I'm gonna base my life, my decisions on god's truth and what what he has revealed the world to be or i'm going to base it on the lies of the world okay Um, another thing of mixing is mixing actually with unbelievers right who is it that i associate myself with do i associate myself with people that are a source of temptation to me that are a source of sin to me for me to to be motivated and encouraged to partake of their sinful lifestyle because i am always with them right and then at the same time I'm, you know, like surprised that I fall into sin or I don't know how to stop sinning. Well, I'm I'm mixing with the world. I'm mixing with the things in the world that keeps me like unable to 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 reach the holiness that I should be trying to reach. Okay, so this idea of mixing is a spiritual concept that God was communicating to the Israelites through through, well, direct commands. He was. But also through these other analogies, right, so that they would get the hint, they would get the message of what is good and what is not good. Number three, is it okay to take communion without attending liturgy during these COVID days? So, of course, we know that taking communion is like the pinnacle of the liturgy. This is kind of the culmination of the entire liturgy is that we are waiting, and then at the end of the liturgy, we partake of the communion, and this is kind of like the the climax of the whole liturgy, okay? But taking communion is not the only purpose of liturgy, right? It's not the only reason to go to church. I mean, you you know, like, you don't don't say, like, okay, well, we're just going to pack up the communion, and we're going to ship it out to people just for the sake of taking communion, okay? Communion only makes sense in the context of the liturgy. It's not like a separate thing to be done apart from the liturgy. The liturgy and the communion come together as a package, right? The liturgy is a place where we pray. And actually, this is the place where we pray and ask God to unite us together. The communion is a union. This is why we call it communion, right? It is a union. It is a union of me to God and with the others around me as well. It's a fellowship. So it unites each individual with God, and it unites all of the members of the church together as one. So, so it, is a, it is the place where the body of Christ exists. It is the place where the body of Christ is formed, because it is through the communion that we are the body of Christ. It is through communion that we are in union with one another, and we are physically present there in the church and we are partaking of the communion together and are being the body in the church together. This is the way that God intended for the church to worship, right? The place, uh, the liturgy is also the place where the Holy Spirit works to transform us, right? Like it is is a place where, where the spirit of God is working to transform us together as the body of Christ in the church. There are a lot of benefits actually from attending the liturgy, right? For instance, we are motivated to examine ourselves, when we go to a place of holiness, right, like the church, then we are forced to, you know, ask ourselves these difficult questions. How am I choosing to live my life? What is it that I'm doing? Who is, who is it that I'm spending my time with? Am I using my time wisely or not? All those questions kind of come to our mind when we approach holiness. When I approach something that's holy, I ask my, my the question, am I worthy to be here? Am I worthy to approach, right? Of course, the answer is no, we are not worthy. God makes us worthy through his grace, through his forgiveness. But I am kind of motivated to ask myself these questions and seek forgiveness and and, and be repenting of my sins because I am approaching God and I'm approaching the church, the the house of God. Okay, in the liturgy, we learn about God, you know, in the liturgy, for instance, we have the readings, we have the sermon, we have Sunday school uh, at church, like we have all kinds of things in the church that teach us about God, right? If all I did was somebody just gave me communion, like drive through communion and I leave, right? Like that I don't benefit from any of those things, okay? Um, in, the, in the liturgy, we worship God. We remember who he is. We remember his positive qualities. We remember his work of salvation. We remember who we are relative to him and our relationship with him and that he purchased us as a, pri- with, a with a price of his blood, okay? In the church we have an opportunity to spend time away from the world, right? I'm not just living in the world and partaking of communion and continuing my day, continuing my life, right? I am leaving the world for a time and I'm going into the house of God, which is a place of holiness, which is a place where I worship God, where I put away from my mind all the distractions of the world. And the only thing that should be in my mind are the things of God at that time, right? And it is in that context that I take communion and I am in union with God there and with the people around me. Okay, so it, it is not that I am I'm not I'm not taking it so lightly, to where I just continue my life my day you know as things are going I take communion I continue no there is a dedicated time for several hours that I am there in the in the in the presence of God in the church in the liturgy um, and and surrounded by the saints and it is in this context that I take communion. Um, also in the church, we are called for repentance, right? We are called to repent of our sins. If I just take communion apart from the context of the liturgy, right? There is no call for repentance there, right? It's just me partaking of communion. That's it, right? The the, the liturgy reminds me that I need to repent and that I need to confess my sins. Um, in the church, we have the opportunity for fellowship with one another, and we have the opportunity to show love, to give encouragement as the body of Christ to one another, right? Because when we are in the world, right? Just as we were saying before in the previous question, we are bombarded, right? We are bombarded with um, all kinds of sinful influences. We are bombarded by temptations. We are, you know, struggle in so many different ways. When the body of Christ comes together, we have the opportunity to learn from one another, to encourage one another, to realize that other people are in the similar situation as i am and that we are all trying to live successfully as believers in this corrupt world all together as one right when we fast we fast as one we don't fast just as individuals when we pray in the liturgy it is the prayer of the of the of the of the people it is the prayer that all of us are praying together it is not just my prayer that i pray alone everything that we do as the church is is a collective um activity something that we are doing together it is not just an individual this is why i can't think of having communion without liturgy because right like it's defeating the whole purpose of there being communion as if there being uh relationship of there being a body of christ communion without liturgy is saying i am the body of christ me by myself right as opposed to saying the church is the body of christ we don't see anywhere in the scriptures or in the early church where where anything like this was done. Everything was done as a communion together. Um, In the church, we are reminded of heaven. Actually, when we go to the church and we pray in the liturgy, we see the icons, we smell the incense, we we see all the symbolism uh, of heaven. And we are reminded that where we are now is just a shadow, is just uh, a place that is fading away. This is not the reality. The reality is the reality of heaven, and I'm reminded by that every time I go to the church, right? Um, So we don't get any of those things just by taking communion by itself, apart from the context of the church, right? Apart from the context of the church. Um, Also, we are called to prepare ourselves for communion, right? In 1 Corinthians 11, where it says, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, right? This is the seriousness of the sacrament, right? The seriousness of the sacrament is I need to be prepared for it. I need to be ready to partake of it, right? Again, taking communion apart from liturgy is not a good preparation, right? We do it in extreme situations, like if a person is sick in the hospital, the person can't come to church, but those are exceptional Situations not intended for the entire body of Christ as one, right? You know, feel like really to a large extent the devil is is really um, having his victory. This is his moment of victory over the church, in a large in a large sense. Like he has convinced us that the place of life is actually a place of danger. He is he has convinced us that the place where I'm supposed to go to have eternal life to have peace, to have comfort, to see God, to experience God's mercy and God's love. He has made us to believe that now this very place is a place that I cannot enter. This very place is a place of fear, right? And that the people around me who are supposed to be a support to me, who are supposed to be members of the body of Christ, who I'm supposed to be worshiping God together with them, that actually those people are a source of disease right and so it's it's extremely dangerous i can understand the idea of of course that we have to have precautions and that we have to be smart about how we do things but we we are smart and we take precautions because we want to continue to go to the church we want to continue to pray together we want to continue to partake of the liturgy and those things with safety right but to say that I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna avoid all of this together for my physical safety. Actually, when we are apart from the church and away from the church, we are, we are dead. Christ said what? Unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. And this again is in the context of the church. This is not like a, like a communion, like again, like a mail order communion. This is not just like everybody's in their house and we, you wanna take communion separately. That is not the body of Christ. Right. We have we are so used to the idea of everything is online and everything can be done, in, you know, on their own. You don't have to be physically present. You have to be physically present in the church. The church is the place of God, the, the place of the sanctification of the believers. It is not a place that we should feel afraid to come. Right. And that is actually the, the greatest victory of the devil, I would say, in the year 2020 and continuing now for many that this, this idea that we have become so afraid of partaking of the sacrament, we have become so afraid of the life-giving mysteries, this is his victory more than any other victory, right? We are coming to the church for, for salvation. We are not coming to the church, um, you know, for any other reason. And we need the salvation. We need the, the, the liturgy. We need the communion in the church, Right. And we need to be prepared for this. We benefit from the church. Away from the church, we are, we are, are, living a very deteriorated kind of life. Our spiritual life is struggling, and we are not motivated and encouraged because we are so, uh, you know, we are so separated from the source of life in the church. Number four. In Psalm seventy, verse three, David the prophet. Uh, prays and says let them be turned back because of their shame who say aha aha what does that mean so this psalm is a psalm that David is praying for asking God for deliverance from his enemies okay so we know that King David there was a you know a lot of like a long period of time where King David was running for his life where he was um, you know at risk of death and he had many people c- trying to kill him and so on. So a lot of the Psalms, when we read them, these Psalms of deliverance, where King David is asking God to deliver him and to um, and to keep him safe from his enemies. So if I read the two verses before this one in Psalm 70, verse 1 and 2, it says, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt, right, so he's asking God to give him protection, he's asking God to confuse his enemies, to let them turn back, to, to you know, to, to, to keep them away from him, okay, so um, King David here, uh, is, is referring to in this verse three that's the subject of the question, okay? He's saying let them be turned back because of their shame who say aha. So what is aha? like aha means like it, like I actually the definition of the word aha is is a word that's used to express satisfaction, triumph, or surprise. like you know when you when you catch someone doing something and you say aha you know like I, I found you right So he's saying, Like his enemies are saying that about him, like they're searching for him. They're trying to find him to kill him. And they come and they say, aha, we found you, you know, and because they want to kill him. So he's asking God, you know, those people who are seeking after me, who are declaring their victory and their triumph over me by finding me and trying to kill me, confound them, make them to be confused. Let them be put to shame. Right. Let them turn back. Protect me from them. Okay, this is what God is, is saying, or this is what King David is saying here in, in this verse. In Matthew eleven six, 6, our Lord Jesus says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What does this mean? So um, when it came to the message and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, there was two types of responses. To him, some revered him as God and considered him to be the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, and they worshiped him and they followed him and they gave up all that they had for him. Right. And then there was another group who were completely offended by his message. Okay, Um, In first Peter, chapter two says, therefore, to you who believe he is precious. Right. But to those who are disobedient the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. They also were appointed. So these two types, right, the group that believe he is precious and he is savior and source of salvation and mercy and love and all that. And there is those who are disobedient and they see him as a stumbling block. Stumbling block and a rock of offense. Why were they stumbling and why were they offended? Okay. There were many things actually that the Lord said that would be considered offensive. Okay. To many people. So let's say, for instance, the idea that um, the first will be last and the last first. Okay. So what does that mean? Like the people who are the most powerful, the people who are the most wealthy, the people who were the ones in control and had authority, right? ones like the pharisees who were the ones who were considered by the people to be the most righteous even though they were hypocrites right christ came to them and he completely cut them down to size and he said you people are you know you're going to hell essentially he told them right for what you are doing you are pretending to be righteous you're pretending to 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 be like holy and 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 spiritual leaders of the people but you are hypocrites and you are wicked so In that sense, the first the Pharisees are going to become last in the kingdom of heaven, and then he would go to the tax collectors to the thieves to the harlots. And those people who accepted salvation from him, that even though they had the worst reputation and yet Christ said about them that they would be the first into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so, so in that sense, it was, it was a message of offense right. From a societal perspective, it was like an upheaval. It was like an upside. Everything became upside down. All the people that were the most revered and the most honored, they were the ones actually that would become the most condemned. And those people who were the most rejected are actually the ones who are going to be the number one. Right. So, So that was a stumbling block. Right. That was a source of offense. Okay, There were many others as well. For instance, when the Lord spoke about the idea of the Eucharist, about eating his body and drinking his blood, this was a source of offense. People heard this, they didn't understand it, they, they didn't want to do it, and they felt like it was, it, was, it, was, it was offensive to them, and they left him. Even some of the, his disciples that were following him did the same, right? Um, there was other types of offense. The idea of the cross itself was an offense because all throughout history, when you think about the idea of a God, right? What is it the first thing that comes into your mind is powerful, right? And actually, you know, uh, the pagan nations, they would, you know, fight one another. And depending on which god they believed was the most powerful, like or based on the outcome of the battle, they would say whoever won their god is the most powerful, right? The power was the greatest uh, attribute or the characteristic about a god, how powerful is he, right? So when it came to the god of Israel, right? Um, they want to see their, their God is a powerful God, right? He, he, is, he is powerful. So the idea that, that Jesus Christ is God, number one, just because he's a man and saying that he is God, that's an offense in itself. But not only is he, is he saying that he is God, but he is a God that's being crucified. He's a God that's allowing himself to be crucified. And they didn't understand. They felt like the reason he was going to be crucified was because he was powerless to defend himself from those accusers, from those people who were attacking him and fighting him, right? That's how they saw it. They didn't see him as being powerful. They didn't see him as consenting to this out of love for a reason of salvation. They didn't understand that. They they saw simply that he was a man who was weak because he could be captured and he could be put on the cross. So this cross is a stumbling block for many, right? There was those who couldn't see beyond The worldly expectations and understandings of whom the Messiah they thought would be, and to believe that this man actually could be God Himself. Okay, so to many, um, you know, he was he was a stumbling block. So um, those people who were not offended by him, those people who understood, those people who believed, those people who, even though seeing him on the cross, did not waver in their faith. And believe that truly he still is the Messiah, that he is the one, that he is the one who is the savior of the world, and that this crucifixion did not prevent that. Actually, this was the means that Christ used for salvation. Those are the ones who are blessed, because those are the believers. Those are the ones who can believe, despite all that happened, they they see it in the right way. The disciples, the apostles, everybody saw it in the right way, right? Those people. But those who did not accept those who did not believe they were offended because of who Christ was what he did how he lived. Right. And so those people are not blessed because they don't have salvation they didn't accept him, they don't believe in him. Okay, so that's, that's what it means. Um, Someone is saying sometimes it feels that he is talking to us, are we like the Pharisees, or whoever our Lord was addressing since we are accepted in the church as servants so speaking about servants. I think um, it's, not, it's not about our reputation, right? Like there are some people who um, have a good reputation in the church. Just because someone has a good reputation doesn't mean that that's good or bad because God is the one who's the judge and not humans, right? All I should care about is how does God judge me? How does God see me? Does he see me as a person who is repentant? Does he see me as a person who is willing to admit when we are wrong? Does he see me as a person who is struggling spiritually, even though I fall, right? In weakness? That is a person who is justified in the eyes of God, just like in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector indeed was a sinner. The tax collector indeed did not, you know, you know, did a lot of things wrong, but he was justified in in the eyes of God because of his repentance. So regardless of whether I have a good reputation. Because I'm a servant, because I'm a priest, because I'm a bishop, it doesn't matter what our reputation is, okay? What matters is what does God see in us, right? When he when he looks at us, what does he see? Does he see someone who is sincere in his struggle for faith or not? And as long as God sees that we are sincere in our struggle for faith, it doesn't matter whether we have good reputation or bad reputation, right? There's also many people with good reputation that are also righteous people. So in, in this case... Um, you know the example of the Pharisees those Pharisees were actually wicked people right, but that doesn't mean that any spiritual leader or any servant or you know anything like that is, is that way. So you know, in the end, we look to God we see are we are we sincere in obeying God or not um, and, and that's really where our focus should be not on what other people think. Number six. Why couldn't Mary Magdalene touch Jesus after he had risen from the dead? Did Thomas touch him? Okay, so this is referring to the idea of when Mary Magdalene, who was one of the people who ran to the tomb after the burial of Christ, um, and she saw Jesus uh, resurrected, and um, she came to want to like hold him, and he told her no, okay, because he has not re- yet risen. So the question is, is, why didn't Christ allowed Mary to, to hold her, um, and and then later from this we know that Christ appeared to the disciples several times, and one of the times he allowed Thomas to touch the wounds in his body. So the question is, why would Mary Magdalene not um, uh, touch uh, touch him, but but uh, Thomas did? Actually, there was a time that uh, that Mary did touch him. Okay, that she fell at his feet and she held on to his feet. Um, So it's not that she wasn't allowed to touch him at all, but in this specific instance, this is what he told her, okay? So I'm gonna read for you. um, It's a kind of a long quote from St. Augustine um, and we'll talk about what he's saying because this is a a good explanation, okay? So he says, there are points in these words which we must examine. This is speaking about Jesus telling Mary that she cannot touch him. For Jesus was giving a lesson in faith to the woman who had recognized him as her master and called him so in her reply. What then is meant by touch me not? For certainly before he ascended, he presented himself to the touch of the disciples. Right. So he's saying after the resurrection, but before he ascended to heaven, there were many who touched him like the disciples. Or when he said to Thomas the disciple, reach here your finger and behold my hands and put forth your hand and thrust it into my side. Right. So there were examples of people who were touching him. For we read that women also, after his resurrection and before his ascension to the Father, touched Jesus, among whom was Mary Magdalene herself. For it is related by Matthew that Jesus met them and said, all hail, and they approached and held him by the feet and worshipped him. This is in Matthew 28, verse 9. So in Matthew 28, verse 9, uh, Mary Magdalene and others, they actually held him. Okay. So accordingly, either the words, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father had this meaning that by this woman, the church of the Gentiles was symbolized, which did not believe in Christ till he had actually ascended to the father. So he's, he's giving now, St. Augustine is giving two, two possibilities, right? He's saying in the one possibility, the reason he would say this to Mary Magdalene at this time of do not touch me, is that in that sense, Mary is representing the Gentiles. And as the Gentiles did not yet believe in Christ, they could not like touch him. They could not be in union with him because they didn't yet believe in him. So one of the like symbolic examples of, of what it could mean is that in this sense, Mary couldn't touch him because she represented the Gentiles in that moment. Okay, so that's, that's option one. Um, or that is in this way, Christ wished himself to be believed on. In other words, to be touched spiritually, that he and the father are one. So here he's gonna give an argument saying that he wanted Mary to see him as God because she did not understand that he was uh, equal with the father. She didn't understand that he was fully divine. And so in that sense, he wanted her to understand his divineness, okay? So he says, but Mary, might have still so believed as to account him unequal with the father. And this certainly is forbidden by the words, touch me not that is believe not thus on me according to your present notions for how could it be otherwise than carnally that she still believed on him whom she was weeping over as a man. In the sense that when she went in sorrow to the tomb, she was was weeping over the death of a human being that she knew and she didn't see him as God Uh, in that sense, which is why Christ would say to her, do not touch me, for I am not yet ascended. So he goes on, he says, for I am not yet ascended. He says to my father, there shall you touch me when you believe me to be God and in no wise unequal with the father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father. Okay, so this is just an excerpt from a longer passage speaking about this verse. Um, So essentially, St. Augustine is saying he wanted to emphasize that he was equal with the Father, that he was divine, and that Mary Magdalene, when she came to him, she was not thinking of him in this way, which is why he told her, do not touch me, right, in the sense that, like, emphasizing his his nature, emphasizing his divine nature as opposed to his human nature, okay, that could be the reason why. <clears throat> Number seven: How do we teach our children to be assertive yet humble, and how and how to do? How do we practice it ourselves? If being assertive means our needs, wants, and feelings are equally important as others, how do we balance this with putting another first at home and in the workplace? Um, so this uh, concept is described in Philippians chapter two: um, the idea of putting others first. It says, "Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit." But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So one important point is that it's not saying that we shouldn't look out for our own interests at all, but it's that we should put others' interests, we should be looking out for other interests, and we should be putting others' interests above our own, okay? Um, One very important concept is our, our, our important principle when it comes to um, selfish ambition, when it comes to our own interests versus other people's interests, is what is my motivation, right? What is the reason why I do what I do? Okay. Um, for instance, one can be assertive, but not for selfish ambition, right? Like, like let's say uh, I uh, I'm 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 responsible for a certain service or a certain job. At work under a certain project, okay. So I'm responsible for it. So my uh, responsibility dictates that I need to direct certain people to do certain work to be done to finish the project, okay. So I need to be assertive, right, to kind of direct people to do what they need to do, and and that's not for selfish ambition, right. That's for the good of the whole. That's for the good of the project, or that's for the good of the service, right. Um, one a person can can be assertive while still looking for the good of others as much as possible. So, for instance, um, I, I do have a task that I'm trying to accomplish, and I'm and I'm being assertive to accomplish it. Okay, but at the same time, I want to take into account other people's feelings, other people's opinions. You know, how are things going to affect other people's? How can we work together as a team as opposed to just being me? How can I give? A credit to other people as we are working together and not taking all the credit myself right that that goes to the idea of the selfish ambition. Um, that I, I'm not seeking selfish ambition I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to promote others i'm seeking to give credit to others i'm not looking to take the credit myself, but again because it's something that i'm tasked with, and I have a responsibility, I need to be assertive uh, doing it okay. Um, if I see other people's needs, that they have a need in some way, I can go out of my way to fulfill those needs. That's showing love to others. While at the same time, I am a leader and I'm being assertive in, in you know, how is it that we carry out a responsibility, right? You can see like a, like a very nice example of this in like Pope Schnuda. Like Pope Schnuda, he would be very gentle, but at the same time, it could be very firm, right? Like, I, like there are times where like, um, I, I've seen him like rebuke bishops, right, publicly, like rebuking bishops publicly for something that they did, um, being very assertive. But he is not doing this because he is feels like he is better than them. He is not doing this because he is putting them down or insulting them. He's doing this for the for the great for the greater good, for the good of the service, right, for the people. Um, and at the same time, the same Pope Stuta would be a very very kind father to these same bishops when they are in need. Right. So it is about what is necessary. It is about doing what is needed, not about my own feelings or the, you know, my, my own personality or trying to gain credit for myself. And assertiveness is also very much related to the relationship with the other people that I have. So, for instance, when dealing with someone who is an authority over me, like a superior to me, right? Let's say at work, I have a boss. And my boss is telling me to do something. Let's say I disagree. Okay. But I can voice my opinion to him or her, right? But at the same time, I can be obedient and I can have a good attitude and I can do whatever I'm called to do, even though I might disagree and I I might have a different opinion, right? So in that case, um, I'm more likely to yield, right? I'm more likely to to yield. That doesn't mean that I'm not assertive. I'm assertive in giving my opinion, but I am yielding because ultimately I recognize that I don't have the final decision, okay? If I'm dealing with my peers, someone like of equal rank to me, Again, if we are discussing something, I can voice my opinion, okay? Um, And what I wish to be done, but I can compromise. So I don't have to always push for what I want. Sometimes I can allow others to do what they think is right. Again, it's a compromise. What I'm dealing with my subordinates, people under me, I can listen to their opinion um, also, and I can be willing to try out their ideas, right? But I'm also gonna be assertive in directing them to do what needs to be done, like parents, for instance. Parents are love their kids, but they can also be very firm with them when they when they need some need them to do something or to learn something. So the idea of being assertive and being humble are not opposites. Okay. Uh, being humble uh, means like I see myself a certain way. Humility means I see myself and I know myself. I know my weakness. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm made of dust. I know who I am. Okay. But God gave me responsibilities even me who is dust god gave me responsibilities give me responsibilities at home give me your responsibilities at work and the church and so god is going to ask me what did you do with this service you know what did you do with the service that i gave you i have to i can't just say you know what well because i'm you know i'm made of dust and because i'm weak and because i'm a sinner i'm just gonna let everybody else make every decision and do everything that needs to be done no yes i know that i'm a sinner I know that I'm going to deal with other people with respect and I'm going to defer to other people in a lot of situations, but still I have a responsibility and I must make certain decisions, even if they're not popular in order for those decisions in order, in order for that work to be done. So um, we can be very humble and being assertive. Christ was the perfect example. You know, when somebody would slap him like on the cheek, he didn't just stay quiet. He responded, but he was not enraged, you know, He was very assertive in what he told people to do and in defending, you know, uh, himself whenever he was, whenever people struck him or defending what was right and what was and condemning what was wrong. Right. He was not uh, so he was not weak. He was not frail. He was not someone who just stayed quiet all the time. Right. But he was humble in the way he spoke to everyone. He was humble in the way that he showed love and that he allowed himself to be um, to be hurt. He allowed himself to to suffer for the sake of of everyone else. So um, assertiveness and humility, are you can can definitely have both uh, at the same time. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. So let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O God, for this day. We ask, O God, for your blessing in everything. Grant us your peace, O Lord, and grant that your church would be open at all times for all to come and enter and to enjoy your presence in it. Teach us, O God, how we should live our lives and how we should follow you, O Lord, in all things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Have a good night, everybody.